Greetings, everyone, and welcome to another Educator Innovator Hangout on Air. I'm your host for this Hangout, Rachel Robertson. I'm the News Education Manager at KQED, the public media station here in the San Francisco Bay Area. Um, and my job means that I work with um, bringing current events and news topics into the classroom. Before KQED, I taught middle school English and social studies for 11 years. Today's conversation is one that's close to my heart. It focuses on what fake news means and why it matters. We'll be breaking down some key terms um, and discussing important concepts. Um, but we'll also want you, our audience, to lead with ideas um, and accessible tools you can use to help your students deconstruct and critique media messages they come across. Thank you for joining us today, and special thanks to our guests for making the time to be here. For those of you watching this Hangout Live, we encourage you to post your thoughts, ideas, and questions via the live chat feature embedded in the video player, or you can tweet your questions and follow along using the hashtag ConnectedLearning. That's hashtag ConnectedLearning, one word. We're going to start by doing a round of introductions. Um, we're going to ask you to give your name, where you work, and then a little bit about what brings you to the conversation today. Let's start with DC. Hi there, my name is DC. I am the executive director of The Lamp. We are a nonprofit based here in New York City. We've been around since 2007, and our focus is to help young people understand media, help them to create their own media, and then to use those skills to ultimately challenge harmful, misleading, and untrue messages. And we do that directly here in New York City, but also in, around the, the country through our Media Breaker tool, which I might be able to get to show you a little bit later. Thank you. Great. Leslie, you want to go next? Sure. So I'm Dr. Leslie Farmer, and I teach educational technology and school librarianship at California State University, Long Beach. And because our focus is education, and I'm really into media uh, literacy, that's why I'm here. And I also uh, coordinate the ICT Literacy Project for the California State University. Great, welcome. Um, let's go next to Sarah. All right, hi everyone. My name is Sarah Morris. I'm a librarian in Austin, Texas. I work at the University of Texas at Austin. And I'm also co-director of a small nonprofit here in Austin called Nucleus Learning Network. Um, I'm currently working on with a team that's receiving port, support from Mozilla. We're developing a news literacy curriculum to uh, take into classrooms this fall here in Austin uh, and at the middle and high school level. Uh, so that's what brings me to this conversation today and happy to be here. Great. We're happy to have you. Um, and finally, Steve. Hi, everybody. I'm Steve Masson. I am a teacher at Highland High School in upstate New York. Uh, I've taught there for 17 years. I'm also a Hudson Valley Writing Project teacher fellow, and I was in Washington, D.C. last year advocating for the Writing Project, and I met some people involved with the Letters to President program and some people involved with Educator Innovator, and uh, I was asked to um, come and talk today. Can I, uh, real quickly, I promised my students that I would give them a quick shout out since I was gonna be on the radio, can I do that? So oh, quick absolutely. shout out to Day Day, the fake news king. Uh, shout out to Tabitha, seventh period fable master, and shout out to Benjamin the donkey, who is a little too intellectually uh, cool to be fully involved. That's an animal farm reference. We just finished reading that. Thanks. So I hope they'll be willing to come on next because they sound like great resources to talk about fake news. Yep. <laughs> 
Um, you might have also started a theme of shout outs every time we do these broadcasts because that was so great. Um, let's start off with some general definitions about what we mean by fake news and what where it comes from, um, what the background is. Um, and to start us off, Leslie has um, some terms to share that she's been working on. Um, but before we, we, I turn it over to her, does anyone want to talk just really briefly about, you know, what do you tell your students fake news is? Or the students you work with? I, I'll jump in. Um, I think that it's, uh, it's debatable what fake news is, and it's kind of ever-changing. And I think everyone's going to have a slightly different definition of it. I mean, there's some very clear and um, terrible examples of it out there. There's plenty. But uh, it's kind of a term that's getting co-opted and changed around and something that we have to kind of keep our eye on. So, so that's one place to start. So if those students you shouted out to earlier, Steve, we're going to talk about what fake news is to them. What might they talk about? Well, I, I learned today that fake news is now an insult that they use with one another. That like, it, you're so fake called, news? You're, you're so fake news. I had no idea. That, so that's brand new. Um, because it's just it's filtering down to them. I mean, the first thing I did was I asked them where they get their news from um, and how they check their sources. And I think one of the big pieces of this conversation is source credibility, uh, verifying sources, um, and defining what's credible and what's not in this kind of information landscape that they live in. Great. So fake news, for one, is not credible. Mm -hmm. um, what about others jumping in? What else is fake news? It's not credible. What else? Yeah, I was going to say that alternative fact is also being used as an insult now to you along with fake news with my students. Um, I think a lot of them, I've had sort of a similar experience that if I ask them what fake news is, they tend to just shout out Breitbart immediately and kind of know that from what they're hearing. But opening that discussion up to credibility to other to motivations especially as well so why was this created was it ideological was it monetary and purpose was it satirical and it got taken seriously and sort of spread like wildfire so having some of those discussions as well i think has been really interesting in classrooms lately for me so we have not credible perhaps coming from a source that's ideological or with a with such a strong bent that it, it kind of twists the facts or makes them alternative facts. Um, what else are we seeing that fake news is? Uh, I'll just, go ahead. Yeah, DC, go ahead. Sorry. Uh, I'll, I'll just jump in and just say that the thing that I always end on, uh, we've done a lot of these presentations um, because I we understand that educators have a uh, big responsibility to try and address this issue. And the thing that we always end on is that fake news is not actually new. It's something that's been around historically since the beginning of this country um, and since the beginning of the printing press. And, and I think it's really important to underlie that we've dealt with this in the past and we will continue to deal with it in the future. But what's really exciting for us, and you know, there are many tools out there that can allow this, we live in the digital age where you can actually challenge fake news. You don't just have to let media tell you what to think, you actually get to fact check it and call it out. And that's a really op exciting opportunity for us and, and educators. 
Great. I think that segues perfectly into Leslie. You have um, some great context to provide us around this issue. Um, and I know you're going to say something and make a comment before. So you can start with that. And then if you want to just take it from there. If you're not. Okay. I think we're it. cool. And just want to make sure that I can share my slide. There we go. So just as they were saying, um, yeah. when we're talking about fake news, um, I just kind of want to give you sort of the, the cycle on it. Uh, we're talking about news where the creator really knows that it's not true. And you know, they're doing it for um, either like they're going to make money, which we're seeing more and more. And they're trying to influence other people, or they just think it's fun. And it does tend to be male-dominated. Women are kind of going into it a little bit in terms of humor. But they're usually thinking about like um, a more of a satirical thing. And when we talk about satire, the idea is that we're hoping that the audience understands the, di you know, the difference between our satire and then what it, the, the referent um, origin is. And fake news can sometimes be confused with propaganda, but propaganda uh, can actually use real facts, but they're kind of cropping down the facts so that they just want to present their side. All right. So those are just some slightly, you know, different things. Um, but regardless, you know, they will use different kinds of appeals in order to attract and to convince folks. So, you know, emotion and the biggest thing is fear. The, the usual, you know, sex, romance, your gender identity, um, making something um, really scarce so that it's more valuable or that you want to join the crowd or the end people endorse it. We'll also sometimes flood you with a whole bunch of facts or associate the news with um, your own values. And sometimes also, you know, that um, it also, uh, uh, appeals to your sense of adventure or youthfulness. And a couple of examples is they fear is sort of the biggest one. So your fake news will also, well, you know, say like you won't have any health care anymore, for example. Or here's the sex and I don't think this ad could go, you know, now, but this was in the 50s. But so that underlying um, sexual context, you know, certainly can be appealing. And, you know, as DC said, this has been going on for a long time, you know, hoaxes, you know, misleading information. But every time that there's like a, a new communications channel, it broadens the audience and it also broadens you know, the possible creators. So, you know, newspapers only really got to be really popular in the 19th century. Here, you know, television in the 20th and internet late 20th and, you know, um, the beginning now of, of this century. And again, now we're talking about um, a, a global distribution and pretty much anybody can, you know, create, you know, fake news. Uh, this is an example where um, this blogger was really discounting a BBC uh, news item and we have to remember that one of the reasons that social media uh, can became so important and in this whole news realm is that there were people that were uh, beginning not to trust 
the mainstream news, whether it's you know TV or the one newspaper in their area. And so they were trying to get a different perspective. But now it's gotten to the point where um, you know it's very difficult to un to really know who, you know whom to trust. And so we have to be so diligent in terms of figuring out who's creating this and why they're creating it, especially since um, it now has become one as as important, or at least as used as often as the mainstream uh, news organizations. And so what happens is that, again, um, you know, people will kind of deconstruct some of the news or they may, you know, empathize and, you know, they'll use that kind of, of reaction. Um, but the, the important piece is that people will go to news that confirms their current um, ideas. And nowadays with, you know, uh, all the different kinds of cable stations that don't have to show a balanced view, you can just stay, in, you know, in a, a a news format or you know your friends in and Facebook that just continue to reinforce your ideas. So that when you come upon something that is not in accordance with your beliefs and values, you the, we're finding that folks will actually uh, reinforce their own beliefs um, that they had before, and that they will actually reject even more soundly the point of view of a, of a different person. So that's kind of where it kind of gets scary these days. It's so easy to just stay in your own mindset. And that's probably the most important message I think that we can give is that we want our students to actually look for different points of view. Great. And I think of Okay. Yeah, no, <laughs> no, that was great. And I think it really got to the heart of a lot of what we're trying to communicate to students, um, both historically and that, that, that are going on now. And so you, you, let, you ended with sort of making sure that students can understand the point of view. Um, do you have any advice or does anyone have any advice about how we can help students find that? Um, we talk about the importance of evaluating sources. Um, and those of us who are media literate um, you know, know how to do that, but how do we teach that skill? Um, and what kinds of things can we do to make sure our students really understand the importance of doing that and not just clicking through whatever they see on their Facebook or Twitter or Snapchat? Who has thoughts on that? Um, the, the project I'm working on, oh, sorry, Leslie, do you wanna go ahead? Okay. Um, I was going to say the project I'm working on that Mozilla's backing is definitely focused on what you just said, Rachel. So, uh, you know, emphasizing the importance of not only just how to evaluate sources, but why it's important to get in that sort of that habit and to build up that skill set. So we're working on developing some really interactive games and um, online materials and things that teachers could put to their classroom, really encourage group work and collaboration. Um, one activity we have is having students sort of deconstruct a fake news piece, if you will. So really think about, you know, their motivation and their target audience and how do you write a headline and if other people review it and kind of, you know, think about what's actually going into that while at the same time looking at more credible sources and saying, okay, what makes this, you know, what's the difference here? How is like the writing style, the author's credentials, et cetera. So kind of having those two perspectives on it is something we're sort of excited to be working on right now. So. 
I, I think that's a really important thing because one thing that the internet has done with students, there's a wealth of information out there. You know, they never have the excuse that there's no information on a subject, but it's, they don't always evaluate what they're getting. And it's not just in news, it's, it's when they do research, um, when they're doing their reading. Um, kids have a tendency to accept the first thing that they uh, click on a lot of times when it's not always the most credible source. And just talking about where information comes from, um, we looked at a website that was um, minimumwage.com, and we evaluated where that information came from and asked them what the purpose of the website was. And initially, they all said it's to give you information about minimum wage. And as it turns out, if you really dig deep into where that site came from, it's restaurant and beverage lobbyists who are just trying to put out one-sided information about why the minimum wage should never change. And it's the sixth or seventh Google hit. So kids will just kind of accept that unless they're kind of um, asked to think critically about the information that they're given. So looking at website URLs and just kind of decoding that stuff is really important. Steve, when you did drill down with students and kind of modeled that or did as a class or, you know, when you did that exercise, when they discovered, you know, what, how one-sided that particular site happened to be, what was their reaction? There were a few that you could see the connections kind of firing and what exactly is going on here. Um, and you could tell that they were thinking about it in a way that they wouldn't have. And I kind of like led them to it. And I, I had loaded questions. What's the, you know, what's the purpose? Write down five facts. Then we looked at the advertising and the advertising was all just kind of the same message that they were trying to get out. So I asked them, where do you think the money comes from this? And that got, that got us to a conversation about where is the money? Because that's certainly one of the biggest motivators for fake news in general right now. It's just people trying to make a quick buck. And that leads to interesting questions about the morality of that because it's a pretty reprehensible thing. That, I just want to bring up the fact uh, there are some interesting interviews with folks who create uh, fake news, and you know they they all actually say I can't believe people believe it, um, and you know they'll say like yeah, if they do that's their problem that's not my problem so they just erase themselves from any kind of responsibility which is yeah, a little scary as you say. Another thing when you're talking about. Um, you know, how information flows is if they if they can kind of like do a timetable from when a particular uh, statement was made or an event occurred and maybe, you know, wherever they are, you know, that first article and see if they can walk it back all the way to the very, very beginning. One thing that we find is that um, a creator of fake news will, you know, put some something out, it'll go viral, and then a mainstream news outlet such as New York Times will pick that up. They didn't do their fact checking, they sent it out, and then the originator then can say, put out, you know, a piece that New York Times said. So it's kind of this round robin, you know, piece. So it's, it's actually validating something that, you know, uh, from an external source that kind of like took the bait from the originator. So the more that students can, as I say, kind of trace back. And you can understand where students could get kind of confused because, you know, unlike say a scholarly journal, you know, a lot of times, you know, like whether it's, you know, Time Magazine or, you know, the 
Washington Post, they don't do a bibliography. <laughs> and so, you know, it can be really hard to find out the originating piece of information. I just think of what I know about students, you know, especially, you know, when they're in their secondary school years, they, they don't want to be fooled. They don't want to be the one that like gets fooled. Um, and so I feel like there's an opportunity here to kind of talk about this subject with students with that mindset. You know, it's really sort of a rich vein. Um, and luckily also these days, you know, we do have, as DC mentioned, technology to fight that technology um, and to respond to what we see online. Um, and so there's a tool that we wanted to introduce um, in this conversation um, from the LAMP. And I know DC is going to talk to us a little bit about that. And then we can come back and talk more about how this will help students not get fooled. All right. I am going to share my screen. And there we go. All right. So if, oh, that's the old presentation. We're not going to do that. So our website, thelamp.org, if you go to our What We Do, we're underneath Media Breaker Critical Remix Tools. You will find all this stuff about Media Breaker. And I've already gone ahead and created a Media Breaker Studio, which is what we call the educator portion of the of the product um, and it's free for a teacher to, to create an account and you create the studio so um, I'll see if I can log out real quick and just show you what this looks like you come to media breaker you type in your name and here I have my studios and I can see my students and I can also add information about myself. I'm not going to really go into depth there. The point is to try and show you a really cool way to get at um, this topic. And I really like the example that was used earlier, and I'm remembering who brought it up, but it was the idea of um, a video that is hard for students to know, which is, oh, no, it was the uh, minimum wage. I think, Steve, it was you. Um, where you were talking about the minimum wage. So this is, we created a studio about the great debate on voter ID laws. So when you create a, a studio, as a teacher, everybody at the top of their studio gets these critical commentary and fair use videos. I'm not going to show you the fair use video, but it's really important to understand that the whole reason why we're able to do this which was which is remixing other people's stuff is because of fair use, which is such a tremendous opportunity to, to talk about the fact that if we're going to talk back to fake news, which is copyrighted material, it is actually someone else's intellectual property that we need to understand fair use and the ways in which it's a really great minute and a half animation about fair use. So I'm not going to show you that. What I'm going to show you is that this is stuff that an educator can create, they click the edit button, they type in great voter ID laws, let's explore a couple of videos that present the case for, for or against voter ID laws, and then here's the framing, and you can hyperlink things, you want to ask the students to consider some questions, 
And then, of course, before they start their break, which is what we call the, the output of what a student would create, we call it a break. These are some things that they, we want them to consider. Identify three facts, which is kind of what we were talking about a little bit before. How do we get young people to think about these things? So I will then go back to the studio. We have down here, we have three videos. The first one, MRC TV, I, I want you guys to see. I put in here a link to MRC TV. This is something that we want our students to consider. MRC TV is an online media platform designed to broadcast conservative values, cultural politics, liberal media bias, and entertainment to a new notice. Doesn't say news anywhere here. And also we have one for Frontline. Just to show the students the difference in the in the tone of the language that what Frontline says, it's investigative journalism, it's uh, long-form news, current affairs, won all these awards. It's really important to, uh, to point this out to students. All right, so then we've got these videos. We can click on the videos. I've uploaded them, so that's what you would do is you would download the video from any source that you want and you upload it. This is the MRC TV one. DC, I'm not sure if we're getting the audio. Ah, the audio is not coming through. Oh, interesting. No, okay. It, the images are great. I just, while we're sort of looking at this, um, for those folks who've never heard of Media Breaker and the amazing things it can do, um, what are just the very basics that you're asking students to do when they're breaking, when they're making a break? Uh, just so we're all clear on that. Yeah, and knowing that the audio is not coming through, I think that that's important. Um, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to stop sharing my screen because I don't think that's necessary. Um, I, what you're asking them to do is you're asking them to find ways in which they can talk back to a video. So find places in a video that they don't agree with. So for instance, you didn't hear the audio, but you saw the video where they were presenting images where they grayed out the image. And the question is, why did the editor choose to gray out that image? And what you didn't hear is there was also this sort of haunting Ghostbuster-like music behind it because it was trying to set a tone. And it's important to ask students to think about that. And then they get to call it out. So in those instances, they could have clipped that video and added text saying, why is there scary music here? Why can't you just deliver this point without the emphasis? And, and it's really, the point is you're trying to break the flow of the one way. And in this instance, you want to, you want to encourage them to, to add facts and attribution to what they can do. Um, if I can't show you the broken video that I really wanted to show you, which is um, Sean Spicer's first uh, pr uh, press conference, it was pretty awesome because... He got up and, you know, he delivered five lies in his first press conference, and that is fake news the, <laughs> it's coming from the White House. And it's so important for students to be able to look at that and, like, well, how do we 
And so we found um, various articles that you students can use to, to point out like this is actually not true and there are three sources that that back this up and so what happens when you're in media breaker studios you're done students do all this so each student works on their own video and then they submit it back to the studio and it becomes a break gallery so you have a gallery of all the all the work the students did and only the teachers see that which is the point it's meant to be a closed environment so that young people are not necessarily exposed to trolling and copyright infringement issues, that it just stays within the classroom and they get to try on different hats. Do you see, um, does the break that you make, um, does it have the text that you inserted in the video? Even if we couldn't hear it, could yeah. we see the text? Because I think it would be really interesting to see what it looks like, because what students are doing, if I have this right, is that they're watching something, but instead of just watching it and absorbing it or even taking notes on it, they're able to interrupt it and insert their Correct. own questions or comments. And so it might be nice if we just could see a small clip about what that might look like. Yeah, okay, I'll go, I'll go back to Even if we can't screen. hear it. Yeah. I think if you turn your micro or your uh, headphones off, maybe, maybe. Yeah, I could unplug them. I don't know I if guess. that's reading the video. Can I just Jump say that this. one of the things that sounds so awesome about that project, which I'm going to look into uh, when we get done here, I think that in media literacy, you have to also have the media creation just to understand how many different decisions are being made by the mass media in terms of all of the information and all of the images that kids are just uh, bathing in every day. I think when they actually create media, they fully understand as opposed to just analyzing. This is Leslie. Um, another thing that's good to do is to take, say, a five-minute speech, um, you know, particularly at, during election time, and that, or an advertisement, a, a commercial, or you know, for you know, um, a candidate, and then have students basically edit it according to a political stance. So you can take the same raw footage and you can say like, you're going to be, you know, member of the Tea Party and you're going to be, you know, really, you know, left wing, you're going to be, you know, um, libertarian. And you can take that same raw footage and you say, now then I want you to make a, a, just a 30 second ad out of it. And it's really fascinating for kids then to see how, you know, how you crop stuff and the order that you put things in and juxtapose, you know, the, the speech, that you can end up with an entirely different message or a different stance. Yep. Yeah, no, I 100% agree. Um, if you guys can see the view break gallery, this is the breaks that we've made of the Sean Spicer video. Um, I'm going to play it, and hopefully you'll at least see... This is what happens to every video. It, it, it's. Good evening. If you're uh, hearing you the sound, please give me a thumbs up. First official press briefing is going to be on Monday, but I wanted to give you a few updates on the president's activities. Uh, but before I get to the news of the day, I think I'd like to discuss a little bit of the coverage of the past 24 hours. Yesterday, at a time when our nation and the world was watching the peaceful transition of power, and as the president said, the transition and the balance of power from Washington to the citizens of the United States. Member, some members of the media were engaged in deliberately false reporting. For all the talk about the proper use of Twitter, two instances yesterday stand out. One, 
was a particularly egregious example in which a reporter falsely tweeted out that the bust of Martin Luther King Jr. had been removed from the Oval Office. After it was pointed out that this was just plain wrong, the reporter casually reported and tweeted out and tried to claim that a Secret Service must, agent must have just been standing in front of it. This was irresponsible and reckless. Secondly, photographs of the inaugural proceedings were intentionally framed in a way in one particular tweet to minimize the enormous support that had gathered on the National Mall. This was the first time in our nation's history that floor coverings have been used to protect the grass in the mall. That had the effect of highlighting. So a student added that text and the sound effect. The sound effect obviously reinforces the message that this is absolutely not true. Um, all right, I'm done. <laughs> great, thank you so much. It was great to be able to at least see how that video, the tool allows um, students to interrupt the video, insert text, sound, um, you know, to, to comment and talk back to that. Um, and Steve, I know you're already excited about possible uses. Um, do you want to keep talking about what you envision students being able to do with this and how they would maybe respond? Or anyone can chime in. Uh, I'd have to look at it first. I mean, one of the things with creating media in a, in a classroom is it's, um, it's time consuming to do it and do it well. I really believe that it's worth it. Uh, that it's a new type of literacy that a lot of teachers don't even fully understand um, and they're skeptical about trying it. So, I mean, one piece of advice is don't be afraid to try things with your kids that you're not as good as them at or you'll never try new things because they're technologically moving uh, much faster than most adults are. Um, so, again, I don't know exactly how I would use it because I'd have to look at the, at the resource in general. Um, but I think it's irresponsible not to try anything like that. I think so many kids are trafficking in video these these days and just watching videos and consuming them at unheard of rates that it's important to uh, have them think about the power of those images and what you can do to kind of push back against the images that you're being fed and that you're that you're constantly seeing. So um, you know, again, I'd have to look at the resources and figure out how much time can be allotted to it, but it's something that I think is worth the investment. DC, how have you seen teachers use this um, in practice? We've, we've been really excited to see the diversity of both the topics that they're addressing, but also the different levels of education that we're seeing. So we're seeing it as young as seventh grade in class, but we're also seeing it in libraries around the country. And then we're also seeing it at higher ed. Um, we get a list of the studios that teachers create every week. And the topics are, um, last week's my favorite was immigrate, uh, migration patterns in Nicaragua, which was just like, I, I have no idea what that could possibly be, but it's really exciting that they found video that they want their students to remix. But then there was one about 
how can we stop the school toilets from clogging? And, and it was just like, yes, that's an important topic that you want students to try and address. Um, and another one that we really liked was simply men versus women. And uh, I, need to, I need to just chime in. We don't have access to the studios that are, all we get is the, are the titles um, because that was meant for us to see that, that, we're, that there's some there's some actual learning happening, but um, I'm, I'm really curious about the men versus women one and, and what's being made in that one. <laughs> Sarah, how does this inter or interact with what, what your, your work on creating ways that students can evaluate sources in the news? Can you see any kind of applications yeah, absolutely. Um, I could definitely see use in higher ed. I think a lot of times the challenge for me is sort of taking what's sort of traditionally expected and say when I'm, say, working with college freshmen and, you know, emphasis on writing research papers and dealing with scholarly sources and then connecting that with what's going on today and sort of media literacy and digital literacy and sort of pulling that all in together. So I think this tool could be really great because we often teach them that scholarship itself is a conversation you're having, you're responding to things, and this tool really, I think, emphasizes that point and lets them interact with things and respond to things, but also build up, you know, media and digital literacy skills as well simultaneously. So yeah, I can see a lot of great application for this. So it's something I try to do in my work, bridging those things together. So. And, and DC, I know you've, you've worked hard to, to provide supports, you know, on the site for teachers who really are excited about getting started. Um, I mean, any of you can chime in, but, you know, what kinds of things, how do you see students being able to jump on this and, and kind of learn it? Um, what kinds of things, you know, Steve, I think I agree with you completely about how if we wait till we know as much as our students were, we're never going to get there because they're so fluid. Um, but what kinds of things can do you see them, uh, or do you see maybe have you seen them really respond to? How easy it is, to, is it to get started? Um, you know, what kinds of supports exist for the teachers out there in our audience who are, are really excited about this? Well, one thing I, I want to offer, and I think Steve would be the right person to um, weigh in on this, is that Media Breaker is an online video editor. If you are adept at editing videos on your own computer, you don't need Media Breaker. You can use iMovie, you can use Premiere. This is simply for folks who don't necessarily have the capacity or the tools to do that. Um, one way in which we've seen this really excitedly used, um, for the past six years, we've done a project called Break the Super Bowl where young people come together on Super Bowl Sunday and we throw a party, you know, like any, any, any Super Bowl Sunday you might have, um, and you're asking the students to remix the commercials that'll be shown during the game live. So we have laptops with all the commercials and they're remixing the ones that they find problematic. And then we put them up online. Like I remember last year in particular, the Super Bowl that commercial that was the, the most problematic for a lot of young women is that there's a, there was a Kevin Hart commercial where he was like a stalker father and he was he was making sure his daughter didn't get into trouble with his boyfriend it was all about cars and more but a lot of young women in our, in the program what they noticed is that this his daughter portrayed very frequently in in the commercial but didn't mention a single word all she was was an object 
and this really troubled them and they were able to call it out in ways I would never have imagined and it was really exciting because rather than taking this passive media spectacle and just letting it wash over them, they were able to enter into the conversation and realize, you know what, we can actually have an impact on this because millions of people are going onto YouTube while the Super Bowl is playing. We upload them live onto YouTube, onto our YouTube channel. We get into trouble sometimes, but we also have a lot of fun. And the idea is to really just in, in encourage young people to not think of media as a one-way street. You get the opportunity to push back and to challenge and not let them tell you how to think. And, you know, ultimately that's what we're trying to teach young people anyways is, is be critical. One thing that's kind of striking me that's interesting about this conversation is the same thing that is so great about the media age that we live in and that kids can push back, they can publish, um, media has been democratized by the rise of all the different ways to share information is exactly the same thing that's allowing the kind of spread of fake news to go so rampantly unchecked. So I think for kids to just kind of appreciate the media moment that they're living in and what they're coming up in and just kind of question it, and not just in media consumption, but in social media consumption and the way that they kind of portray themselves and their Instagram accounts on their Facebook, on their Twitter, et cetera, I think is it's a really valuable literacy lesson for this day and age. And it's certainly not traditional, but I don't, I think that we kind of owe it to kids to encourage them to think about it, not not tell them what to think about it because they will certainly rebel against that, but give them opportunities to write about it, think about it, recreate it, remix it. And that's one of the things that makes the lamp project so interesting and, and, and promising is that it gives more kids more access to do just that. And that's a really, that's a great thing. It's commendable. Sarah, do you have anything to add about how your the students you work with or the educators you work with would respond to something like that? This. Yeah, I definitely say. Just I, I work with educators, sort of ranging from the middle school level up through university level, um, and I, I really think people would be really excited for this. It's really engaging and hands-on and um yeah like you were saying steve i think this you know we're, we're definitely living in a moment right now and there's a, a media moment that is happening and so being able to really think with that and engage with that i think is really important for you know a range of learners a range of educators so yeah i could definitely see a lot of enthusiasm for this type of thing and it's a great tool to kind of bringing because I, I see people doing amazing stuff every day right now just um, really responding to what's happening and thinking about ways to engage with students so this can really I think tie in with a lot of great work that's going on out there. Steve, one thing you said about the kind of media moment that we're living in and, and how so many different diverse educators, you know Sarah, that you work with and other, uh, others of us, you know, are coming at this from so many different angles. Um, and before we started, um, Steve, you were sharing about how you, you've taught Animal Farm recently um, mm -hmm. and how that old book that, you know, has been around for a lot of years, you know, just keeps being relevant um, and, and certainly is in this moment. Um, would you mind sharing a little bit also about how you've taken something that's, some might say, a very traditional novel to teach um, students um, and then made it sort of more relevant given, you know, the current moment? One thing that was challenging about it is 
anytime you're dealing with really political material is to try and minimize your political ideology as much as possible. Um, because like I said, you have to meet kids where, uh, where they are in terms of their politics. Some are completely apolitical. Some of them have very entrenched political beliefs. Some of them base all of their political beliefs based on what they hear around the dinner table. So I don't think, you know, politics have to be part of your classroom, but I think a lot of teachers try to kind of force their beliefs on others. And it's hard to kind of have to check yourself and ask questions rather than make statements. But there was certainly a lot of talk and, you know, I brought in some, I actually, we played the Sean Spicer video in class and we talked about comparisons to, you know, what Squealer did and how the pigs, you know, used information and used the other animals' um, inability to read and articulate thoughts um, and where that left them and, you know, what the implications were for that. So, you know, I, I try and teach a brand of critical literacy where it's understanding not just what you're being um, given in class and understanding the word on the page, but understanding the world that you live in, how power works. Um, but it's, you know, it's a, it's a balancing act when you don't want, you know, you have a pretty serious bully pulpit, if you will, if you choose to use it that way. So it's, um, I think you just have to ask good questions rather than make political statements with stuff like that. But the, uh, the kids, once we read an article about how Orwell just jumped back into the bestseller list, they started making connections very fast and they started paying uh, closer attention to uh, the news. And a lot of them, when we started this, you know, the, the discussion of fake news, they didn't really even pay attention to the news. There's so many other things out there kind of competing for their attention that it was interesting just to see where they were at in terms of their news consumption, because a lot of them, it's very minimal. Any other thoughts about how, you know, you've seen educators, you know, connect you know, what's going on and kind of talking back and developing these critical thinking um, habits of mind to, you know, different points of their curriculum or different points of things they need to teach? Well, this is DC. One thing I'll offer, um, I think it's really important when it comes to media literacy and exploring topics like this is that you move from analysis to action. It's really important. And you can't just stay in analysis. And I think this chimes into what Steve was talking about when it comes to, yeah, the, this very democratization of the creation of media has led to a way in which fake news can be delivered. What we've seen in our workshops is when we teach young people how news gets created, both print news and video news, and they see the process in which it goes through, the fact-checking, the framing, the the gatekeeping, and they realize, oh my goodness, this is not easy. They gain an empathy for the folks who create real news that they see it so important to celebrate and champion the, the, the solid fact-based journalist product. That doesn't change the fact that they're still critical of it because they know how it's made. They know how the sausage gets made, but they also understand, wow, this sausage took 60 people to make. Um, and so we, that lesson gets driven home when it comes to, the, to moving from analysis to action. Um, and that's why we consider Remix and stuff that happens like Media Breaker or on other sites 
sort of a gateway drug for the the creation of media because a lot of I think a lot of teachers and Steve and and Sarah maybe you guys can chime in here but a lot of teachers have a, a serious obstacle for actually thinking about how they can teach the creation to their students because it is a big deal to come up with camera shots and editing and footage and and whereas remix what you're doing is you're taking someone's existing material and all you're simply doing is you're transforming it by adding your commentary that's a great way to move you towards the full production which is so important to teach it's something that we think is valid and and necessary Have you seen the uh, remix trailers that they do for movies, where they turn The Shining into a romantic comedy and Zootopia into a horror movie? Um, watching those, and uh, I've had a couple of kids make a couple of those. Um, even the kids who didn't make one of those, just watching it and talking to the kid who did make it, you can see the light bulb turn on about how many different people are involved and how many, like you said, how many different decisions are being made. Steve, I think we might have lost Steve. <laughs> Sarah, did you have anything to add? I think I'm sure he'll come back. Uh, yeah, I think um, there was, I think there was a documentary called just Remix that was out a couple of years ago that a bunch of libraries, librarians I knew were um, showing this to their students just as a way. I, I think you're exactly right, DC. It's such a great on-ramp to this really important uh, media creation and just being able to break things down and kind of deconstruct and understand what's going into producing this. So you can both be critical and have that sort of respect for how much is going into making this is really important. I mean, I, I do a lot of teaching with uh, scholarly sources and producing scholarship here at a university level of sort of thinking of that as remix in a way that you're breaking things apart and constructing new arguments or responding to things. And so being able to tie that into media creation as well, I think is really uh, valuable and something that can be appealing to educators like myself. I often have a very limited amount of time with students, so you're really trying to get uh, bang for your buck, so to speak, and making sure you can, you know, get the most out of the time you have and really uh, be able to use tools and be interactive while still being mindful of, you know, the demands on your time, your students' time, like what all you have to cover. Um, collaborating with faculty as well, obviously. So, yeah, I think tools like that and just thinking of Remix is a great way to kind of get at these broader things we really want to tackle and emphasize with our students, for sure. I'm, I'm sure Steve will return, um, and I'm sure he will, right, as it's time to, to wrap up, which is getting to be that time. Um, but Sarah, what you, you brought up about kind of the decisions that educators make every day um, with the limited time that we have with students and the, the value and the, the importance of making sure that these critical thinking skills and media literacy skills um, are part of what we do. Um, in the classroom because we know what's happening and students are consuming media at every moment practically of their day. Um, and so I'd love to wrap up um, with thoughts on 
either the importance of just being able to, to embrace this or ways that maybe if a, a, a teacher or, you know, classroom wasn't or was about to dip their toe into the water or wasn't sure where to start, um, what you would kind of start of as your gateway drug, as, as DZ put it, um, to, to making this start working. Because I guess the, the ultimate is that students are starting things um, in the classroom and then motivated to continue on their own time. And one of the, the beauties of uh, a media break and, and digital learning these days is that students really can access this um, from home um, and just like they would at, at school. So dipping to close out, um, what, what advice would you give our audience in terms of dipping your toe into the water of media literacy and, and it, tackling this issue? We've, we've heard about the history of it. We've heard about lots of different ways to, to enter in. So what are your parting words and advice about how to start? And either Sarah or DC, you can you can start. And I do have faith that Steve will come back. Um, I'm gonna. I'll just shamelessly plug librarians because I am one. But <laughs> um, I just think librarians and so many people out there have been doing this for a really long time. Um, whatever we're and we call it a lot of different things. We're critical literacy or critical thinking or evaluating information or whatever we're calling it. But it's been there for a long time. So I feel like if if you're just getting started or you've been doing it or wondering how to you know connect it to this moment we're living in i'd say you know reach out to colleagues like librarians um and there's so many great tools popping up right now like what we just saw from dc and media break and you know mozilla's putting out good stuff i'll shamelessly plug my other thing as well as <laughs> mozilla um we have a github page just uh fake news dot open slash austin.org and i think the link is on y'all's website so um, you know, a lot of great organizations out there really trying to tackle this with new technology and things. So I would just emphasize to people, you know, take, take advantage of tools out there, take advantage of the knowledge that exists in this wonderful hive mind of educators and librarians who've been doing this for quite a while. And, you know, just, I guess, don't be afraid to try something new in the classroom too. I certainly haven't you know, done as much with say like media or uh, video remixing in the past, but I've tried it a couple of years ago and it was great. The kids knew more than me and they taught me and we had a lot of fun. And so that was just a really rewarding and valuable experience. So. And I will also shout out to librarians because librarians are amazing. And we have worked with them from our beginning because we see them as the core repositories of exciting curiosity about learning and knowledge. And they are the folks, when I think about growing up, um, the place that I loved and knew that existed was this place that had all these books, but more importantly, that I could go to the desk and someone behind the desk would say, well, what's interesting to you? And they didn't tell me what was interesting, and I think that that's what's important for all of us as educators is that we're really trying to spark curiosity in young people. And the way that you spark curiosity is you get them to question and challenge the way things are. And including things like fake news, you want them to start challenging things that they don't feel are correct or accurate, and then give, give them roads and pathways to figure out what the answers are. Um, I think that can be found as easily through a book or even through social media. And, uh, you know, students are, are remixing all the time when it comes to social media, so it's not that hard to teach and point out. 
Awesome, thank you. I actually just got word that I do not think Steve will be able to rejoin us, um, but uh, we'll link to um, a lot of the various resources um, that he provided um, that, and that he mentioned today around um, fake news and how he's relating it and connecting it to his classroom, um, including all those uh, students he shouted out at the beginning of the hour. Um, while we're shamelessly plugging things, um, I just wanna shamelessly plug um, a support that KQED is actually um, providing or seeking to provide to teachers um, around media making. And Steve, are you back? Oh my Sorry. gosh, Steve, you're back. I'm so Sorry. excited. All right, I'm gonna do my shameless plug after Steve. Steve, we're wrapping up, unfortunately, but you're back just in time to give some advice um, to your colleagues, fellow educators, our audience, um, around how you would advise them to get started dipping their toe into critical media literacy or addressing the fake news issue, um, where should folks start if they're not sure where to begin? I think with anything like this, I think you need to do what you're most comfortable with to start, but you have to start. Uh, like anything with technology, you're not going to be perfect at it the first time that you try it, but it doesn't mean that you can't get down in the sandbox and play with the kids. Um, and I think that you kind of have to. I think that um, it's engaging, it's important, um, and it is a new type of literacy that's go that's not going anywhere and getting more and more important. So, so start with what you're comfortable with and branch out from there. And don't be afraid to say to your kids that this is I'm trying this with you. We're doing this together, and that um, we're not sure what the results are going to be. And I think that if you do that um, and you're willing to put yourself out there, learning right along with them, that it'll be good for them and it'll be good for you as a teacher. So there you go. Wonderful, thank you, or somebody you could come back. Sorry, I don't know what happened, I just got booted off. <laughs> well, um, but right before you came back, I was actually giving a plug, speaking of teachers and, and jumping in um, and doing what you feel comfortable with and, and just getting down and getting started. Um, KQD does have a resource called KQD Teach, um, which is a bunch of self-paced online courses for teachers. It's completely free, it's public media, that's what we do. Um, <laughs> to improve, your own skills um, in multimedia making. Um, so we have courses on video storytelling and podcasting and making infographics. And these are not for your students, they're for you um, as educators to um, improve your skills. So um, roll up your sleeves and get started, but that's a possible support. Um, and that can be found at teach.kqed.org. Um, and so we are out of time. Um, we want to take a minute to thank every one of you um, for being here, Steve and DC and Sarah. Thank you so much for your wisdom and everything that you have brought to the conversation today. Um, for those of you in our audience, if you'd like to keep up to date on future opportunities, um, webinars as awesome as this one, sign up for our monthly newsletter at educatorinnovator.org and follow Educator Innovator on Twitter at innovates underscore Ed. That's innovates underscore ed. Thank you again so much, and good luck in that sandbox with your students. Thank you.